Hello, hello. Welcome back, everyone, to Sound Perspective. Um, if you're new here, my name's Alfie Faber. I'm a soundie and filmmaker here in beautiful Sydney, Australia, and uh, I made this podcast because I just love chatting to clever people in film about how they combine sight and sound. How fun is that? Um, sorry if my voice is a b- bit, uh, you know, cooked in this episode. I might have COVID, uh, or at least I'm just very sick. I'm just waiting for my test results back, but that's why my voice is a bit gravelly. Um, Anyway, COVID or not, today I had a really interesting chat with Lauren Hadaway, a director in LA whose debut feature, The Novice, premiered this year at Tribeca. Uh, The Novice is a kind of gritty psychological coming-of-age drama following Alex, a college student who joins her university's rowing team and develops an obsession with coming the best on the team, no matter the cost. It's a really incredibly accomplished first film and has already gotten five Independent Spirit Award nominations, so it's definitely got a bright future. Um, However, even before The Novice, uh, Lauren had a very established career in film, having worked in post-production sound uh, in roles like ADR and sound effects editing on films such as The Hateful Eight, uh, Whiplash, and Justice League. So I was really curious to chat to her and hear her story about how she transitioned from that world to directing. Um, and remember, if you like the podcast, please do follow me on Instagram at Alfie Faber, or follow the podcast on Facebook uh, at Sound Perspective Podcast. Um, also, if you want to watch The Novice before listening to the interview, which I would highly recommend, it's available on all SVOD streaming platforms Yeah iTunes and your Google Plays and all of them. Um, So do check it out. Otherwise, uh, enjoy the interview. Lauren Hadaway, thank you so much for uh, making the time for the interview. Yeah. Excited to talk about sound and and, uh, get nerdy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So can you tell me, like, so like you just mentioned you started as um working in post-production sound before the novice can you let tell me like how you got into that and what your path was yeah i mean because i i wanted to be a director when i was 15 i saw kill bill and i was like i'm gonna fucking direct and then went to went to college and kind of got uh overwhelmed by because i'm a redneck kid like everyone's at the school i went to was from like a big city and they had all this money they seemed to have all the fancy equipment felt like i couldn't direct and didn't like the idea of eyes on me but I loved I had loved editing and so I kind of went into post-production in college um, and then through that discovered sound there was like a sound class and I like the there's a project where you take all the sound out of a clip of like a, from a movie and re-replace it and I thought mm. that was the coolest fucking thing and yeah. until that moment I had never um, really thought about sound at all like, I, probably like most of the world most of the world is not thinking about it mm. um, and I got obsessed and I took a ton of classes and uh, all those sound classes I could and I took a, I tried to get an internship that was audio related. Um, and I did, it was like a, a commercial editing radio house in Dallas. I tried really hard to get, uh, the, the girl, the assistant there was pregnant and like her spot was going to be opening up and I was like graduating right then. I was hoping like, Oh, I might be able to be a common assistant in this audio place. And it did not happen, which is honestly the best thing that never happened to me. One of the best things that ever happened. Um, cause I probably would still be in Dallas right now or, or not where I am. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah. because of that, like I ended up taking another job someplace I interned actually as well, cutting real reality TV and through that, like, um, picture editing. And, um, that became, I mean, by chance was, was collecting, uh, hours to be able to get into the union. But I, um, within a couple months I'd been hired to, I promoted to, to like a lead editor. So half the episodes were mine. And I realized like, this is as high as I'm going to get, like, this is it in Dallas. Mm. Um, and so then I was like, well, I got to move to LA and I wanted to do sound and I wasn't going to be able to do it in Dallas. So I spent basically, um, the next six months kind of moonlighting being a working by day on, on cutting, uh, reality TV and at night and weekends, I'd be researching and calling people and, and emailing and having long conversations and just trying to like build relationships up. And you kind of hear the the thing, like, call me when you're out here and then union kid. Um, but I did, I, I moved to LA and my first day in LA, I literally got into the union and then I called one of these yeah. people who said that and yeah. they were like, Oh wow! Like you know, I think it was like this. Oh, she actually did it. Um, but they got me. They got me in the door at um, Sound Deluxe, and I and I interviewed there and started an internship, and that kind of um, snowballed. I mean, it's just like this is a business of relationships. Really, you work for one person, someone else gives you a bone, you don't fuck that up. Someone else gives you a thing, and you kind of gradually build and end up getting more into dialogue and ADR supervising, just because those were kind of my first contacts. And I think you know it's a less sexy job, and every film has dialogue that needs edited. Mm. Um, and um, you know, at the time that wasn't my goal. I wanted to supervise sound for theatrical features by the time that I was thirty, but it ended up also being like fortuitous in a way because I got all this time on the ADR stage, on the mix stage, with actors, with directors, with you know, seeing everything come together, which I wouldn't have gotten if I was a sound effects editor. Mm. Um, so that was kind of my path there. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, that's my uh, audio start. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and. At some point during that work in sound, when you were working on some really incredible films with big directors, you uh, decided you wanted to make a film about your experience uh, as a rower in um, universities. And like, when, when, when did the thought of that film come about? And did you always know what it would thematically be about? Did you know it would be that story of like ambition and drive? What I, I, cause I, I had been writing forever. Like I have novels and drawers that no one will ever read. And, and I had mm. been wanting to tell a story, you know, about grit and ambition and also about rowing. And I had even started rowing a little bit in LA, like read to kind of getting back into it, thinking it'd be a novel, but I hadn't done anything with it. And, um, but it was, it was simmering in the back of my head. But, uh, and I think too, like, you know, I mentioned I had the goal to supervise sound for theatrical features by the time I was 30 and my other goal was to work on a Tarantino film which I did when I was 25 mm. um, and then after that like I hit my stride in my career and was getting hired on bigger and bigger things I got hired on um, Justice League when I was 26 or 27 which was a huge project for me um, the kind of thing you know people twice my age are gunning for and um, and, and too, it was just a big it was just a big deal and uh, that kind of gave me the confidence to think and also too being in post-production sound like you're the ass in the post-production you see the the collection of all the problems that have happened for the entire shoot and the entire post you get some semblance of it. and you also have this unique thing of, of seeing films go from the four-hour assembly cut to the final theatrical version and like you know things that are reshot what ADR you need you're hearing dialogue on loop over and over and over there's and just you're seeing kind of like how the sausage is made and i think the combination of all that and also it was similar to the realization that i had when i was in dallas like i was 27 and working at this level and i, I could see myself hitting the goal that i had for myself by 30 and i was wondering okay well if i hit that goal then what's next like is it just going to be 
doing sound for someone else's stories for the rest of my life. Um, and so I decided it was actually November 2016. I was in the parking lot of Formosa, Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself that I was going to transition out of sound to, um, and into writing and directing within five years. Um, and uh, five years and one month later, my film is out. <laughs> so not wow. too shabby. Yeah. yeah. And um, I mean, and then too, I mean, the question of the story comes from... I started researching my directors that I love, their first films, the scope, the scale, the budgets, the types of stories. And it's this cliche of like, write what the story only you can tell, like what you want to see. Mm. Um, something that's, you know, very personal and director's first things are often kind of intimate and same with first novels, first screenplay, whatever. Yeah. So I took, um, and then going back to the rowing and wanting to also tell stories about grit and ambition, I put them together and I basically took my four years of um collegiate rowing and compressed it down into a year and wrote the novice Mm. the first draft i wrote in july 2017 and then you know over the next year and a half before we shot it there was countless drafts and it evolved and grew kind of from there Mm. how um how did you find that process of writing a feature which is a lot of work in itself like with a day job was that like particularly distracting for you or was it a difficult process um, I mean, I had always been writing on the weekends and stuff like that was my thing and novels or whatever. But particularly with the script, I was in uh, London. The Justice Justice League was doing reshoots for like five, six weeks. And I was in London and waiting. They were reshooting like half the film, basically. Right. But we were stitching it together with random ADR. So I was there, you know, when the actors weren't doing their thing, they would come out and do a couple ADR lines. and that. But I didn't have a lot to do. Like the mm. film all the work was done they're reshooting the stuff that wasn't done and then i would see it have a little bit of time so i had all this time on my hands uh and that's actually when i started writing the first draft of the script i was in this this like shitty uh trailer parked <laughs> outside a blimp factory in some like podunk uk town yeah. and didn't yeah. even have a proper desk in the trailer it was like literally my laptop was on fucking boxes i had stacked on top of each other um, and I would write on that and get all nerdy and then someone would knock on my door and be like, Hey Lauren, we need you to do this. Here's some sheets. Here's ADR. So and so is available then. And then I would, you know, snap out of it, go to the ADR trailer, record some stuff and then kind of come back into it. And, and on the weekends too, when we weren't working, I would go to a cafe in the nearby town and write. And, um, then I finished the first draft actually, it was a week or two period. I had to come back to the States before I went back again and, and finished it um, writing, you know, an evening or a weekend in a cafe somewhere. Wow. So uh, the first draft I did in three weeks. And I think for me, I, I found that the um, spitting things out, like it's better. I just like to do a vomit draft, get everything on the page because writing is really rewriting. Mm. Um, so you but, said you, but, you, you wrote the first draft in three and a half weeks. Three weeks. Yeah. Three weeks. Wow. That's really yeah. impressive. Wow. How much did it um? How much did it change from that? Like how 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 much of that vomit draft in three weeks did you manage to retain? Um, I mean, it's I would actually be interested to read the first draft and compare it to the final draft. But yeah, in a year and a half, it's a film. I think is an organic. It's like a, an organism. It's growing. It's changing. Mm. And um, I also. I also, this is a coming of age story in a way, I, in, in the year and a half between the first draft and the and shooting it, I, I went through a lot of like tumultuous life things that I also wrote into the script. Yeah. Um, characters, the certain characters got more, like Danny was a smaller character originally, she became more beefed up. Um, I think, uh, I'm not sure, I mean, it. I, I'm, I don't know, I'm curious, but things... I'm sure some of it's the, the gist is there, the the overall structure's there, and then sort of the scenes and things and the the 
I don't know. A lot, mm. a lot's the same, but a lot's different. It's yeah. hard to say. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Well, um, I find it interesting that you worked in um, ADR a lot because I think making a transition from sound designer to director, one of the most difficult aspects of what you have to learn is like the dramaturgy and communicating with actors because it's such like um such a different art to what we do and was working in ADR and seeing how directors participated with actors was that a good learning experience for you yeah that was an incredible education and again too like most people coming into first time feature directors are coming from a background of either directing tons of commercials music videos or they're very into camera and image mm. and i always felt like again like i couldn't direct because i care about image but i've never been nerdy about it you know the way that i am about sound but then i realized i had this you know unique education and, and i double majored in marketing when i was in school and the one All thing right. i took away from degree was um you know marketing isn't about being the best or the fastest or the cheapest or the most expensive it's about how do you differentiate yourself from everyone else and i mm. kind of realized like i had this background in sound and i had this unique education mm. and yeah I, was, I watched um incredible directors working with actors in the room and, and trying to sort of observe like how different people worked with actors more some are more laissez-faire some are more intense and very specific about what they want some aren't even at the adr stage and also how directors deal with actors who have are having meltdowns on the stage for, for variety of reasons yeah um those kind of things and, and even how directors are on the mix stage because you know in the mix stage the thing about final mixes is often you get everyone coming together the producers the editors the director everyone's kind of there and they're watching something and giving notes often on not just on sound but color and other things come in and mm. and seeing how people command the room and how they command the visions and the types of conversations that are had and you know and seeing that not everyone has it figured out and it's constantly this growing thing i mean yeah i don't know it's hard to say specifically if i like what i picked up from who but i think it's kind of like when you're a child you know the first five years of your life you're just sponging up everything mm. and that becomes your personality so for me from from november 2016 if not before to when i shot this because i was also doing the snyder cut when i was doing post on this film mm. um like from that time like i'm just soaking up everything and just kind of like taking it all in and I think, too, learning from editors, I think, really are when the directors aren't around, they're kind of the head person in charge, you know, at least with post-production. They're huge, like creative and logistical kind of royalty in a sense and mm. spending a lot of time working with them and how they think about story and craft and all of that. Um, but all of it. Yeah. It's just seeing like you don't have to be. And I think, too, seeing like you don't. The, the other thing I think a lot of people, especially from small towns or who are coming from a different profession, maybe think that whoever's working as a director, they're, they're creative geniuses, like I did, certainly. But mm. you see that, no, there's always fucking problems. There's No one's got all the answers. There's, it's always just, you're just constantly, you have to adjust and be a human being. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was an ama amazing education, I think. What Something you mentioned, which I found really interesting, is that you didn't come from a background of, like, directing shorts or commercials or music videos or anything you just you really just jumped straight in the deep end and it's quite phenomenal what you managed to do for a first feature but um i saw on your imdb a short called row in 2017 was that um i couldn't find it anywhere what uh, what was that I feel like I should remove this from my IMDb because people keep asking to see it. And I'm like, oh, I put it up there to like have something. But what that was, was um, I was trying to 
at the time think about because at the time when I was imagining this film, I was imagining a much smaller scale, smaller budget, all of that, yeah. and shooting on the water is a clusterfuck. So I really wanted to see about um, using drones to and see oh. how like feasible that would be to like shoot boats moving in water. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of an exercise in that, and I wrote this thing that I really consider like a mood vignette. It's only three minutes <coughs> long. Yeah. And it's three minutes long, and. Um, it's, there's no dialogue in it. It's yep. uh, this kind of like atmospheric thing and um, kind of a montage thing. So that was for me an experiment in that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And I don't know, you know, you hear all the time about like, you know, Damien Giselle did Whiplash and that got him the funding, this and that. Like for this, this particular short film quote with quotes around it um it was more for to kind of show investors and things because you know i had the mm. script i had the lookbook to show them like hey i made this little thing um mm. but it was never really intended to to be seen by the world you know right right <laughs> asking about it so i'm like <laughs> i don't know you mentioned whiplash and uh lots of reviews that i've read of this film compare this to whiplash i guess just because it's kind of thematically related they are really different films but can considering like you worked on whiplash you were one of the sound editors how do you feel about that comparison do you do you think it's a just one i mean i think whiplash is, is one of the most incredible films of all time so yeah i don't think i live up to that but i'm, I'm glad to be in the same you know sentence with it but um no i think because because for me it was a conscious decision i love films like whiplash i love black swan i love these obsessed artist trope films but like mm. the thing that i never connected with with a film like whiplash is like in whiplash there's the, the instructor who's who's the sort of external motivating force um in black swan i mean you have the mother you have the you have the thing they're trying to be the best they're trying to be the best drummer in the world best ballet like those things, like I'm an internally motivated person. And I think because mm. film, I mean, it's a visual, like you have to, it's not a novel. You can't yeah. like write what a character is thinking. It's like mm. what you see and what you hear, that is the fucking film. And so for me, I wanted to do a version of the obsessed artist trope film where the character is the hero and the villain and the character is entirely uh, internally motivated. And mm. so that really dictated a lot of the creative decisions and, and it being kind of this, um, somewhat insane you know punch to the face at times uh thing because i mean it's not a literal it's not an inspirational sports film it's not like some people ask me you know it feels like a horror film at times or this or that and it it's genre bending and i use films that i use songs like 1960s love songs under action scenes and um get really intense with the sound design and then the visuals and sort of things get abstracted moments um and that's all to really show it's like how do you put the audience 99% of whom have never rowed don't know anything about rowing and probably haven't experienced this level of obsession like how do you make them feel what the character is feeling and so mm -hmm. that really dictated all the choices and a sound mentor of mine um, Wiley Stateman he actually said a couple things to me uh, years and years and years ago that have always stuck with me and that apply to everything he said that directors good directors great directors always have intention with everything mm. that they do mm. and also that whatever sound you're cutting in like what is this adding to the story like what mm. do you you don't just put something in because it sounds cool or whatever like is this adding to the story to the mm. themes to whatever and those are kind of things I really took to heart with um you know trying to express my version of the obsessed artist trope film yeah yeah I'd be interested to hear a bit about what production was like when you hadn't like you hadn't directed much before and jumping into that it was like a 24 day shoot or something was it 
So yeah, I think it was 24 in a splinter day. And it was insane. I mean, I, well, I walked on the set the first, or when we pre, like the days before we shot, I don't even know the fucking word for it. But when the grips are all gripping, doing all their grip things and the things are coming in, like see the camera boat, we're doing camera tests. And I see that we have this boat with a fucking uh, techno crane on it. And I'm like, holy shit, there's, this is like a real, a real movie. Like this is real, like a catering yeah. truck. There's honey wagons and there's like got porta potties and there's giant lights and things and da 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 da. Um, I was really I don't know what I was expecting, but I was like, whoa, this is fucking intense. Um, and it was intense. And I think though, but I mean, maybe in some of this, I got this this training. I guess you could say from working at this really high level on, on sound and, and some kind of tense situations. Is the, the thing that I learned doing sound and being on the mix stage is when you know everyone's very tense and exhausted. Mm. I mean, getting asked into fucking production. Um, I've worked on some mixes, you know, 45 cats yelling. Sorry if you can hear that. Um, 45 that days straight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 15, you know, 15 hour days. Like people are tense and exhausted. And if like this a sound effect is missing or something is wrong or whatever, um, energy is contagious. And so if someone tells me, hey, you fucked something up, if I'm like, oh my God, I fucked, oh yeah, yeah, so I'm gonna, I'll get rid of, you know, if you do that, everyone freaks out but if you're like oh yeah yeah give me five minutes and just go to the back room and then fucking freak out like when no one can see you everyone immediately calms down like yeah. in editors i fucking love editors um but anyone who's worked with editors know they're generally the most neurotic intense people because again they're like trapped in a room and they're fucking they know every frame and they've seen it and they like poured over the timeline and i and i edited this film too so i totally relate but like, mm. uh, they're so neurotic and God forbid you didn't get one of the OMF things like in the right spot. They don't fucking, <laughs> their ear picks it immediately. And if yeah. you start freaking out, the editor starts freaking out. Everyone starts freaking out. But if he's just be like, yeah, yeah, five minutes, good. So I think I applied the same kind of thinking to, um, you know, production is like everything is going wrong constantly, Yeah. but my energy and Isabel too, she, the, the actress, she knew this as well. Like our energy was really contagious and determined how everyone else was going to be mm. um so there was some really tense situations mm. that i'm like this film is not going to be finished <laughs> i'm going to lose all the best of his money uh this is a fucking disaster oh my fucking god i'm going to kill myself all these things are going on in my head but i'm just like smiling you know like <laughs> we're great guys like this is fucking fine um so that i learned from sound and i mm. think too Another thing I, you know, as a director that I realize, the thing I realize as a director is you don't have to know every single thing. What you need to have is a clear creative vision and be able to communicate that. Yeah. Um, and that I think let me be like, I don't have to know how the techno crane works or whatever, or where the lights go and all that. Like I need to be like, this is what I want to see. This is what I want to hear. And then you trust your crew to go get it. Um, and just being confident with that, I think, mm. made me okay kind of stepping into the unknown. Mm. Yeah. Sounds like sounds like jumping in the deep end. So you did the assembly cut yourself. Was that um, uh, out of kind of like budget issues or was it something that you wanted to uh, have a go crack at yourself before handing it to an editor? Um, I mean, it was a mix. I honestly, because again, I have an editing background and I was like keen. I actually started editing some scenes when we were shooting. Like on my, we did six days a week on the off day. I would edit in like a, a bar um, and I cut some of the scenes together that actually have barely changed. One of them, the foggy Rosie in the middle of the film that has not changed one single frame since the first edit. Um, but that I was cutting then. And then, yeah, when we, because of the nature of the shoot, we ended up adding 
we ended up adding three production days uh, when we were shooting, which ate through the post budget. And we kind of knew, you know, me and my producers going into it, like we have a post budgeted, mm. but we don't really have any, there's not going to be any money left for post. Like, <laughs> let's just get the thing shot and on a fucking hard drive and then we'll figure it out. Um, Cause then at least we have a product. And I was like, well, worst case, I have a background. Worst case, I have a background in post-production that I can, you know, do a lot myself if I need to. And that's kind of mm. what happened. Um, I started, I started, this cat is insane. I started, <laughs> I started editing um, the day I got back from the shoot and started editing the assembly. And 28 days later, I had the assembly and then kept going and doing a couple passes. And at that point, initially, the producers were like, Lauren, you cannot write, direct, and edit the film. Like, you can't. And I was like, well, we don't have any money left. So I'm going to start. And when you guys have money, then I will stop. And so they saw the assembly. Then like, okay, okay, you can keep, you can keep editing. Uh, and I was like, thank you. So then we got to the point. It got to a sticking point for me. And then we were able to show it to the investors too, and they were willing to put up. So they're like, okay, we have something here, and put up yeah. some more money. We're able to get Nathan uh, Nugent on board, who's incredible. And then at that point, he was in Ireland, and I had run off to Texas during the pandemic. And spent a month kind of working together back and forth and figured out some things like particularly the first 15 minutes and kind of some emotional beats um, that he really uh, kind of helped solidify with him and got it in, in another good place. And then we didn't have him forever, mm. unfortunately. Um, and then I felt there was one more kind of big pass. Uh, and then all the, you know, all the festival deadlines and everything are coming up at this point. And uh, it was really like this 11th hour thing. The last kind of past was I was inspired by, um, I was learning French as a pandemic hobby and only listen to French music and like fucking yeah. sick of it. Mm. And um, there had been like five or six months at this point of only French music. And I was going insane. So I listened to this um, soundtrack of uh, movie soundtracks, like uh, scores. And I heard this track from The Farewell by who's the composer on the novice now, uh, Alex Weston. And like suddenly oh, yeah. everything clicked because the score was the one thing about the film that I had never figured out. And Nathan and I like worked through this and kind of came up with a couple things with him and like pushing it in that direction. And he had some ideas there. And I think that the seed of that and then hearing the the farewell of it, it all clicked. And I, and I drove home and I cut like seven minutes out of the film and had been, you know, hovering at basically a hundred minutes for, for nine months. And I chopped, I just like, chopped all the all this fat out and re temp scored the entire film and then sent this um this impassioned email to Alex Weston like you gotta come on you gotta fucking <laughs> score this movie you inspired me da, 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 da. yeah um and then and then yeah so that was kind of the process probably cool. not the usual one but by necessity of budget and pandemic yeah. uh yeah so you um you you asked Alex to come on after hearing his work on the farewell yeah and I and oh, I cool. only heard it by chance, like yeah. I, I hadn't even seen the film. <laughs> Honestly, like, <laughs> yeah. I had. Um, it was a track that I was listening to the Portrait of a Lady on Fire soundtrack, but someone had added other random songs oh, on it, including right. some of that. Yeah. Um, and it just was total by chance that I heard it. But as soon as as soon as it came, like it popped on the opening image of the novice with the boat twirling like i had yeah. the image of that happening with this this um if you've seen the farewell like the the kind of vocal simple thing and it all clicked and that was a very different than what i had been temp scoring the film with up to that point like everything was a lot darker dronal i mean when mm. nathan came on board there's some things that we pushed a little bit more kind of orchestral mm. kind of where it ended up now yeah um but that was that was like a total kind of accident really that's that's really cool because i i quite like about um the novice that the soundtrack isn't um super moody drone um like 
uh, it, it's not didactic in the way that it tells you like this is meant to be like psychologically thrilling it's it's more kind of understated and i think that's really um yeah it's really effective to not just push for i mean it's already i mean i think too the one of the, the problem with having a more on the nose score is that the film visually and everything going on is already so intense yeah uh it was too much and um the other thing too is that i wanted alex to feel kind of like the cipher and like this um enigma and who is she and um, making her feel like this is a conversation Nathan and I had too, is like, we don't need to understand her. We need to be curious about her. And, um, and so for the first 15 minutes was something that was constantly trying to figure out and, and going, did all these passes of the first like 15 minutes of the film and the script, it was always this issue. And I had, you know, sh written, wrote, written, written these scenes that, um, we shot to kind of like explain, cause everyone's always like, who is Alex Dahl? Why is she doing this? Yeah. And the whole point of the film is to like answer. I mean, that's the point of the entire fucking film. But like yeah. the classic Save the Cat beat sheet is like you got to know who the character is by page twelve, and then you got yeah. the exciting incident. And so I wrote. I, you know, there's these scenes that we shot and put in that were trying to answer this fucking question that people keep added, asking that I hated. I hated these scenes. Yeah. And then Nathan came on, and we had this conversation. Like, look, if these scenes are in to answer this question, and people are still asking this fucking question, and I hate these fucking scenes. Let's just cut the fucking things out because yeah. they're not even functioning like they should be. Yeah. And instead of like being this like weird wishy-washy gray middle ground of like not answering the question and also not being bold, fuck it. Let's like go completely the other direction. Let's make her even more of a creature, even more of a this like enigma of a person. And like she doesn't even she doesn't even speak for the first twelve minutes of the film. Yeah. Um. And that was a conscious decision that we made. And so mm. the score too asked this idea that she is this. She is someone that we are curious about. It's almost like watching a mm. zoo animal. And with the sound design too, like the first time she goes into the rowing info session, everyone else's voices is kind of dropping away and she's looking around and observing everything. And, and she's not she's not focused on the people. She's really mm. focused on this sport and she's curious about the world and we are curious about her. Um, yeah. So that was kind of all, yeah. you know, go big or go home. I really, I'm, I'm really glad that you kept her a mystery because I find exposition in writing is often way too uh on the nose and just gives you all the information and i think for me it makes me tune out of a film because i stop i i stop having to do work if everything is just handed to me and i really loved that opening well one of the first scenes of the novice where she goes um she goes into the practice and they say to her so why do you want to do this and she starts speaking and then she gets interrupted and she never really answers the question. And it's something that's just left hanging there the whole film. And I, I just think that was really, it was very cleverly intentional in, it was almost like a declaration of, you don't need to know why she does this. It's just- yeah. I mean, the thing for me is being very bold and making it clear that the why is ambiguous. And and the funny, when Nathan and I made this, this decision to, to say, fuck it, like we're gonna make her even more about creature um that note of why went down like 90 fucking percent people still ask it and it's still a question that's brought up but it's more of a conversation people and it still is a conversation piece sometimes it's a criticism too but i think like again it's about being bold and intentional and, and like you said like leaving the the why are you here hanging i mean for me i want to feel a little bit like a mystery another thing that i find out that i find too is that Again, because film is a simple, you have, you know, an hour and a half, two and a half hours, you've got your certain beats that you have to hit. It's a visual medium. It's a, it's a sonic medium. 
that we simplify everything and we as humans like to understand why for things and we dial everything down to a single event. Like I had so many people be like, what happened? I mean, maybe some, some event happened in her childhood or da, da, da. <laughs> And the reality is of being a human being, like, yes, there are people who are affected by some traumatic event that happened or some specific thing that you can pinpoint or some relationship or whatever. But I think for 90% of us that mm. who we are and our problems and our neuroses um, are a collection of a thousand events over the course of your life. And to pinpoint down why Alex is the way she is or why she's doing anything is to simplify what has been 18 years of buildup for her yeah. life. And I don't want to give that easy answer. I don't want to be like, oh, she's like this because she, you know, she, she saw her dad uh, die when she was seven <laughs> or, or whatever. Like, yeah. I don't want that. It's too fucking easy and it's yeah. too neat. Yeah. And like human beings are disgustingly nuanced and messy creatures. And it's so aggravating. Yeah. Um, but that's just the way it is. One of the, um, most interesting insights I've had in the making of this podcast is, um, this director, Glendon, this Australian director, Glendon Ivan. Um, he, his first short film, um, one Palme d'Or can and when I interviewed him about it and it's this short film about like um a it's based on an experience he had when he was a kid where uh he he had a bag of fireworks and they exploded before the firework night or something but is anyway it's a really good short film but he said like um I was shocked when people liked it because I thought it was such a personal experience, such a personal story for me that I thought the only people who would like it would be my mom and my family members. <laughs> and then it wins Palme d'Or at Cannes. Um, and he said he thinks that people are attracted to stories that are very focused and like niche, but that, that have like a broad appeal and something that... Um, something that people can relate to even though they're not from that background. Do you think that the nicheness of the novice is something that helps people be attracted to the broad? Like, sorry, I kind of mangled this yeah, question, I mean, but do you think that- No, um, I know what you're asking. Yeah, I would think, I think that the smaller that you go, sometimes the more universal things feel. And I think, it, the the thing I like to equate to it too is people want meat, like they want something to fucking bite into and sink their teeth into. It's like the equivalent of when you watch politicians speak and the kind of like non-answers they give, the vague answers they get, it's all smooth and like very suave and whatever, but there's mm. no fucking substance there. Like what people really latch onto is a specific story of a specific person and specific details and things that happen. Like we crave that. We want mm. that understanding. We want those details. Like this is why, you know, every award season you, you, you hear, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio ate bison liver and like crawled in a carcass. Like we want to hear that shit. We don't want to hear, yeah, he, he went to extremes to da 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 da. No, we want to hear what extremes did he go to he ate a fucking liver he went inside yeah. a corpse like those are the things we want and like i've never fucking eaten a liver or gone in a corpse but like i'm fucking fascinated so so yeah i mean i think i know for myself too and i think the beauty of storytelling um of filmmaking of reading whatever is that you it is it is it's like time time transportation why can i what is it time time why is my brain not functioning right <laughs> time like you know where you you move in time my brain what is that word Time, what is that? Time transport? That's not the word, is it? <laughs> time travel? Thank you, time traveling. 
it's like it's like time traveling yeah um to be able to to step into and we get to live more lives than we are it's it's a way to like live you know we only we have a short amount of of life to live and we can't do everything so we get to step Mm. into these experiences um and that way so i do think like having these like very small intimate seemingly niche things like i fucking love them like that's what i look out for i don't need the general hallmark movie where every you know all 30 films are basically the same story of the same thing like Mm. fuck that i want Mm. i want details yeah yeah um and it's it's it seems like the novice is a very introspective story and it seems like the journey of this journey of making an indie film and the determination and grit that it requires seems quite a good parallel to the story of the film and the and it's you must have really like destroyed yourself making this basically i mean making an indie oh, feature yeah. and making absolutely yeah and do you know yeah do you, continue sorry oh sorry um do you feel like it's been a particularly healing process at all or do you feel like you've learned anything about yourself in the process of making it um yeah i mean it was this was kind of my blood sweat and tears investment it was a huge gamble i essentially stepped away from a successful career to do this and mm. And, you know, people I worked with very understanding and, and been supportive and all that. But it is like I've taken real steps back in a, in a career. Um, so it was very all in on me. And the thing, too, that I always tell people is like making a film. This is my baby. Like and I- anyone else who worked on it. Yeah, it's, it's there. They care, too. But it's the equivalent of like if you have a child, if your child tries to walk out of the street, I'm not going to. Anyone, any decent human is going to stop the kid and be like, it's not my fucking kid, but I'm going to go out. I'm not going to let the kid walk into the street. Yeah. But beyond that, if if how many hours your kid is like looking at the screen or is are you reading to the kid at night? Is he eating his vegetables, having water? <laughs> is he drinking soda? Like those niche details. I don't care if the kid seems like he's OK. <laughs> That's fine. And so the thing that I had to just sort of realize, and I think anyone going into this has to realize, is that no one is going to care as much about your baby as you are. And you have to be willing to either let things go if you're not going to do them yourself or you have to fucking do them yourself Mm. to get into the level, especially on an indie where everyone is kind of scattered and working on 20 things and no one's really getting paid or not paid enough. Um, so I did a lot of work on this that hopefully, and I, and I've had tons of meetings, you know, and the film, my goal with this film was to get to make a second film. And it seems like, you know, knock on wood, I'm going to have that opportunity, but I've had tons of meetings. And the thing I would say is like, I can never make another film like this one because there will not be a third because I will die. Like I will fucking die. Um, especially post-production. I mean, it being a pandemic didn't help, but like, Mm. It was intense and I was doing this, I was doing cutting sound on this and also on, on the Snyder Cut by day and working some hundred hour weeks and uh, just the amount of, de- and it's just, it's a lot and it was exhausting and I think in some ways, especially the post-production process of this, it felt kind of like I was having my own um, novice experience 2.0 in a lot of ways and it is like you don't know and, and especially during the pandemic not knowing if there's going to be film festivals or theaters if we're all going to be dead in six months like <laughs> what's going to happen yeah doing all this shit doing post-production in my kitchen alone isolated um my fucking roommates like behind me cooking sausages making potions you know <laughs> manifesting things like it was it was insane um but it was worth it to me and i think i did learn something too and i mean learning the lessons of that this is your baby and 
what corners you can cut and what things you're willing to let go of and not. And, um, you know, I think, yeah. And also learning that I, I can't keep doing this forever or I will, uh, burn out and die. So, yeah. 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 But it was, it was a uh, cathartic, I think making it, uh, mm. I'm very proud of it. Mm. Well, you should be. And, um, so Lauren, I'll let you go in a sec, but, um, is what, what's next for Lauren Hadaway? Do you think you're going to try and direct, get into directing other things like commercials and like music videos and these things that career directors do, or are you insistent on features? Um, no, I'm being very, I mean, offered, you know, commercials and things like that and music videos, but I'm making a very active choice because anytime that you say yes to something, um, you're, if it's two weeks, it's only, it's like, oh, it's only two weeks to do a commercial, but that's two weeks that I'm not writing on my own thing. Like, and I told yeah. you, I do a first draft in three weeks. That's like yeah. a lot of time. Um, so no, at the moment, I mean, I'm still living, I'm living off my savings from, you know, my last sound job. Basically I have mm. a little bit of time before I need to start really sweating, but, um, no, I'm trying to be very uh, chess maneuvery here and, and thinking about consciously what I want to be doing. And the way I evaluate projects now is, am I willing to cry in fetal position on the floor <laughs> over this project? And if yeah. the answer is no, then it's going to be a no for me. Yeah. Um, but I have a script that I, I just I got a producer we're working on. I'm doing another pass on that. I have a, a pilot that I wrote in a Bible that I just wrote that I need to send it off. Uh, to, to my agents. There's a couple of things that I'm kind of in development on. Um, mm. I've been developing a slate in theory. And so, but the thing that I say that I, this analogy that I've discovered recently that I fucking love is being a writer director feels a little bit like having children in the 1800s. You have to have a lot of them <laughs> because most of them, they're not going to make it to adulthood. So, yeah. So I don't know. Like, I want all my babies to make it, but yeah. the reality is some of them probably aren't. I mean, I love them and nurture them just the same. Um, but yeah, I am trying to stay in features or in directing my own stuff, yeah. writing things um, and stay away from sound and kind of smaller projects for the moment, at least. Mm. Awesome. Well, good luck with it, Lauren. And it was a pleasure chatting to you. And uh, I look forward to your next film. Thank you. It's great chatting with you too. Thanks again, Lauren, for making the time for a chat. And thanks, as always, to JD Legulon, who did the intro music and the transitions that I use every episode. Um, wearing them out. Um, yeah, have a good one, people, and hopefully catch you next time. Thank you.